Hello, and welcome to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Extraordinary tales from around the globe and throughout history. I'm Dan Benson. Michael Larson was born in Ohio in the US on May 10, 1949. A reasonably intelligent person by all accounts, he would grow up to be one of those people who, for reasons best known to themselves, feel the urge to apply that intelligence to endless rounds of get-rich-quick schemes. He did attend college, but didn't complete his studies, eventually becoming an air conditioner repairman and supplementing his income during warmer weather by driving an ice cream truck. But his desire to make fast, easy money consumed his thoughts most of the time, and he would often find himself in the middle of one scheme or another. In fact, as early as primary school, he was bringing chocolate bars to school and marking up the price before selling them. But as an adult, he got even more involved in scams and schemes, including when he heard about a bank offering $500 to open new checking accounts. He opened several, using fake IDs, took the $500 out, and abandoned the accounts. On another occasion, he registered a business under a family member's name, hired himself, then fired himself, all for the purposes of obtaining unemployment benefits. But Larson was onto something bigger. He was an avid watcher of game shows, in particular one called Press Your Luck. This game's highlight was an electronic board where money, holidays and other prizes continually changed and you had to press your buzzer to stop on a particular screen. You could also land on a whammy, which meant you would lose all your money. For all appearances, it seemed to be a game of infinite possibilities and complete random chance. But Larson suspected this wasn't the case, and in 1983, shortly after the show began its first season on air, he began recording the program on video and studying it. And he was right. Turns out there were only five patterns, and they repeated predictably. Larson would spend some six months watching and studying the pattern until he felt secure that he could predict where the selector would land, and what it would land on, and began using the pause button of his video cassette recorder as a stand-in for the buzzer, so that he could practice stopping the selector until he was confident he could land on whatever prize he wanted. In 1984, when he felt ready, he applied to be a contestant, and while initially there were misgivings, he eventually gave them some old chat about being a poor ice cream truck driver who was desperate to buy a birthday gift for his six-year-old daughter, and somehow or another, he passed muster. He'd made it onto the show. Round one was general knowledge, and your points determined the number of free spins you could have. He didn't fare too well, but that's hardly a problem when you can simply land on free spins at your leisure. Then came the game board, but Larson, for all his practicing, didn't start off too well. The first few spins were disastrous, including landing on a whammy and a prize he wasn't even interested in. They hadn't reprogrammed the board's pattern, however. There was a difference in lag between the pause button on his VCR and the actual buzzer in the studio, but Larson would get his eye in, and soon he was amassing quite a sum of money. When he ran out of spins, he would simply land on free spins and continued the winning streak. 
his winning streak lasted for so long, some 47 spins, they had to make a two-part episode. His total winnings? $104,950 US, a sailboat, and two holidays. The record for the most ever won on a game show. The CBS network that produced Pressure Luck was in crisis talks. By watching the episode back, they noticed Larson react excitedly to wins he hadn't had time to process yet. They knew what he was up to, but after combing the rule book, they realised nobody had had the foresight to predict such a scenario. And under the rules of the game, Larson hadn't cheated. He was paid up, and of course, not invited back. But Larson couldn't help himself. Within a few months, he had become absorbed by a radio contest where the serial number of a $1 bill was read out each day on air. If you had the $1 bill with the corresponding number, you would win $30,000. Larson's eyes lit up when he first heard about this, and he immediately withdrew $50,000 in $1 bills and began checking serial numbers for a match. It was at this point that things went a little sour for him. You see, while he had the cash at his home, he was burgled while he was out of the house one afternoon. He would go on to launch a fraudulent lottery scam and take his investors for some $3 million, and when caught out, had to go on the run. He was never caught either. He remained at large until his death in 1999 from throat cancer. He was just 49 years old. You may be familiar with the works of an Australian author named Peter Kokan. Kokan has won multiple awards for his writing, particularly poetry, but it may surprise you to know that he developed his passion for writing in prison. Peter Kokan was an assassin. Born in Newcastle in 1947, Peter's father unfortunately perished in a car accident prior to his birth, and this tragedy was the most likely reason for Peter going somewhat off the rails, as his mother remarried a violent alcoholic. If his home life wasn't bad enough, the family continually relocated, making it difficult for Peter to establish meaningful and lasting friendships. A lonely youth, Peter left school at the age of 14 and began drifting from one menial job to another and spending a great deal of his time homeless. After a lifetime of difficulty forming relationships and lacking any real guidance from the adults in his life, by early adulthood, Peter Kokan lived almost exclusively in fantasy. Dark fantasy. He did, however, have a belief that his life had purpose and there was something important he needed to accomplish, if only he knew what that something was. Maybe, he thought, some drastic action needed to be taken to sort of get the ball rolling, so to speak. Maybe it was intended that he should not necessarily do great things, but rather be infamous. Peter hit upon an idea and bought himself a gun. It was 1966, there was a federal election that year, and on the 21st of June 1966, leader of the Labour Party, Arthur Caldwell, was addressing an anti-conscription rally in the Sydney suburb of Mossman. 
With hindsight, you would think this would give the then opposition leader's campaign a good leg up in the polls, but Australia's involvement in the Vietnam War wasn't ruffling as many feathers as it would in the next couple of years. In 1966, anti-war and anti-conscription protesters were still on the fringes. It would take more young men to be forced into giving their lives before public opinion turned against the war. But Caldwell, to his credit, knew his stance wasn't the popular view, but stood on his principles and campaigned on it anyway. And after addressing the crowd on that day in June, he walked back to his car, where his driver awaited him, and got in. Unlike many other countries, in Australia it is customary to get in the front seat next to the driver and converse with them, at least on most occasions, and that is where Caldwell was sitting when Cocan approached the vehicle. Caldwell assumed it was one of the crowd come to speak with him, but Cocan pulled from his coat a sawn-off rifle, pointed it at Caldwell, and fired. Cocan didn't make good an escape. The crowd captured him and turned him in. Caldwell survived with only minor injuries, mostly sustained from shards of window glass. But Cocan was sentenced to life in prison for attempted murder. Of the assassination attempt, Cocan said, quote, Unless I did something out of the ordinary, I realised I would remain a nobody all my life. I would not have done anything so cruel as shoot someone if I had any alternative. End quote. Shortly after his imprisonment, Cocan would be moved to a psychiatric facility in Morissette, and in a passing conversation with a fellow inmate, was introduced to the works of English poet Rupert Brooke. This would be the beginning of Peter Cocan, who was already an avid reader, becoming something of a literary scholar. He began corresponding with various poets and writing his own works, he even struck up a friendship with Arthur Caldwell, who called in to forgive him for the whole shooting him in the face thing. They began corresponding and became lifelong friends. In 1976, at the age of 29, Peter Cocan was released. He is, at the time of this recording, an internationally acclaimed author and has a doctorate in creative arts. An interesting man who turned his life around in the most extraordinary way. You've been listening to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Created, researched and hosted by me, Dan Benson. If you enjoyed the show, hit the subscribe button and continue to join me as I uncover extraordinary stories from around the globe and throughout history. Till next time, peace, love, light. Take care. Catch ya.